continuing with our True Lies series. And um, if you're new or you're a visitor, um, what we do during the summer, our summer series is called True Lies. And, and what it is, is we take a look at things that are commonly held, commonly believed by many, even inside the church, that um, sound true, but are lies. And the destructive, the dangerous part is that, that if we really believe them, if we live in them, um, they can destroy our life, our faith, our hope, our, our walk, um, and our witness. So we go to the source of all truth. We go to Scripture um, to debunk those lies with the truth of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 17. That's where we're going to start. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, but we're going to start in John chapter 17. Um, if you don't have a Bible uh, you, and you want to use one, there may be one under one of the seats in front of you. If you don't own one, that's yours to keep. Um, it is yours free. Um, and that's thanks to the generosity of the people here. Uh, today's true lie is this. I don't have to answer to anyone. Now, we also have a Christianized version of that. Um, the Christianized version is, I need Jesus, but I don't need anybody else. So it's either I don't have to answer to anyone, or the Christianized version is, I need Jesus, but because I have Jesus, I don't, I don't need anybody else. Um, it's all about independence, you know, going our own way, being on our own, not having to answer anyone. And isn't, isn't that what we kind of dream of growing up, right? We're children in our parents' homes, especially, you know, going through, we want to be kind of out of the influence, you know, uh, we can't be under their thumb, under their control, especially when we get into high school, because then it really starts buzzing. We, we long for the day when we can leave home maybe and, and go to work or go to college or whatever it is. And then we get into our work or, or whatever it is, and, and we transition to, wouldn't it be great if I could own my own business? And I, I would just answer to myself. I'd work for myself. And then one day I'll retire, and then I won't have to answer to anybody. Unless, of course, I have a wife. Just kidding. Just kidding. Sheree's gone this morning, so um, <clears throat> we'll just keep her away from the podcast. How about that? Actually, Sheree and I, we've been, um, this year, we'll be married 25 years. So um, I actually remember this story very well. She and I realized early on that we need people to speak truth into our lives. We need people to, to speak truth into our lives. See, we were... Um, married a little over a year, and she's expecting Tommy, and we're living in San Antonio. We'd saved up our money enough to buy our first piece of new furniture. New furniture. This is the the first um, piece of furniture that's not going to come from like Goodwill and smell like a family of cats was birthed on it. So we go out. It's a very exciting time, and we buy a couch. What kind of couch do we buy? white, cotton, couch. We're going to have a boy, a baby boy, and we buy a white cotton couch. Really? How smart is that? We should have been arrested for being too stupid to buy furniture. By the time he got to be three years old, the couch looked like a drop cloth. I mean, so I had this idea. I'm going to take a marks a lot pen, right? I'm going to circle 
all of the stains. And next to it, I'm going to write a little story about how they got there and then make a perfect wedding gift someday, maybe. Right? But where was the person in our lives that would speak the truth into our lives? You don't buy a white cotton couch until they invite white dirt. Right? And only then. It's not so much of a problem if you don't have somebody to speak truth into your life when you're buying new furniture. But it can be deadly if you and I don't have somebody to speak truth into our life when we're trying to live the new life that Christ died to give us. And, and sadly, I, I think that that's where we are a lot of the time. I'm speaking from my own experience. You know, we have that seed of independence I don't need to answer to anybody. I need Jesus, but I don't need anybody else. And, and this lie has become so common because um, our broader culture is very individualistic, very independent. And I think that that culture has, has crept into the church and found a very comfortable home here and in our hearts and in our lives to where um, the way that we've, we've added to that is that we, as, as a broader Christian community have so emphasized the need to make a personal commitment, an individual commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our own personal relationship, which is true, which is necessary. But in in doing so, I I think at least in my own case, and and in many cases, I believe across uh, Christendom, that in emphasizing that, we have sorely neglected the fact that the New Testament and the Old Testament scream out that God not only called us as individuals, but he came to save and call a people together. Like the Jews, like the Christians, God's family, a people, not disconnected individuals. That he's calling us to be one, to have lives that are woven together, welded together, tied together, duct taped around, so inseparable that we would experience and, and know God in such a true way as a people, as connected lives lifted up to the one who is the source of all life. So we go to John 17. And if you're there, um, the, the context of John 17 is Jesus is about to go to the cross. This is the night before. And he is pouring out his heart to God the Father. He is praying. This is when he's sweating great drops of blood. I mean, he's in anguish. And, and he prays something twice in this passage that we'll look at. He prays something twice, and, and Jesus doesn't stutter. When Jesus emphasizes something by repeating it, it's so that we can know it. It's important. This was on his heart. And so here we are in 17. Let's, let's take a look at verse 11. Jesus is pouring out his heart to the Father. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Get this, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's not just talking about the people who are alive at that time, his followers. He's praying for us as well, that we may be one as he and the Father are one. Jump down 10 verses later to uh, verse 21, same chapter. 
Jesus prays again that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that they may all be one, that we might be knit together as God's people intertwined and separable as Jesus and God the Father are one. Can you, can we just like imagine, can we just try to picture how close Jesus and God the Father are? How knit together, how in concert, how close, how inseparable their hearts, their minds, their destinies, they are one, right? That we might be one like that? Now, can you, can you imagine now having that kind of relationship with a trusted gospel community with other believers? That mean we might be one in the same way that Jesus and God the Father are one? Can you imagine that with, with broken people who, who have traits and, and, and sins that, that get on your nerves? And, and that, can, can you imagine? It's hard. It's hard. And I, I think that living your life our lives like that in a community of believers with accountability and gospel community, the reality of that, if you're like me, and I believe the majority of Christians, it's so far beyond the realm of anything we've, we've ever pictured or experienced that, that it's, it's, it's not even on our radar screen, right? But it's, it's the very thing that, that God cried out to his father. And so in, instead, we... we usually limit our interpretation of verses like this to church unity, which is not a bad thing at all. To church unity, and, and, and the way we usually take that is we don't yell at, call names, or spit at each other during church business meetings, which is important, and we should not do that. But I believe it goes far beyond, far beyond, far beyond. Being one means more than that. Being one means taking I believe three steps with a trusted circle of fellow believers. If you're a note taker, you might want to write these down. Number one, to connect deeply. You say, well, I have Christian friends. Okay. People you say hello to, people you go out to dinner with, people. Connect deeply on a heart level, on, on, on a soul level with all the things that frighten us, that, that threaten us, that trip us up, that... that that wreck us, the hopes and the dreams that we have that are yet unrealized on the deepest of levels. You you got that? I don't know. I tried an exercise not long ago that somebody challenged me to do and said, do you have, do you have men in your life, Tom, that if you died, you'd want carrying your casket? Because they knew you and they carried you through life. Not enough. Not enough. Why? Well, because I, like many of you maybe, tend to avoid accountability, avoid that level of deep connection. Okay, number two, before I change the message. Two is loving radically. We not only connect deeply, we love radically. That doesn't mean we gin up these, um, we work up these um, warm, mushy feelings. They may be there and they may not. 
but loving radically means connecting as broken people with broken people, carrying one another, leaning on one another, um, limping sometimes, sprinting, God willing, sometimes closer to Jesus, running the race together. You know, so we connect deeply, we love radically, we sacrifice. Their life is, is our life. Their wins are our wins. Their spirituality, their holiness is ours. Their wounds are ours. Connect deeply, connect deeply, love radically, and speak the gospel into one another's lives. Speak the gospel into one another's lives that we gospel one another, that we speak hope, that we speak Jesus, that we speak inspiration, that we speak scripture, that we speak um, encouragement, inspiration, sometimes warning, sometimes conviction, whatever it is, that we would speak the gospel into one another's lives so that we connect deeply, love radically, and gospel one another. Jesus gave us to one another so we could fully know him and know the Father and know the Holy Spirit in the incredible love for us. In John chapter 19, just two chapters later, as Jesus is actually hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, he sees his mother, he sees John, his BFF, and and he says in a sense, Mom, this is now your son. John, this is now your mother. He gave John to Mary and Mary to John. And I believe he did this because they would need one another to fully experience, to fully know, to fully realize his presence and his power and his direction throughout their lives, throughout their earthly lives. And it says that starting from that day on, John took Mary into his home. They did it. And just in the same way that Jesus spoke to Mary and Jesus spoke to John, I believe he's speaking to us and saying, lift up your eyes, look around, look around. Here is your father, here is your mother, here is your brother, here is your sister, here is your son, here is your daughter. This is your friend, this is my body, connect. Because only in that can you experience fully, only in accountability and gospel community can we fully know the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This is a race to be run together. This is a race to be run together. The question is, will we do it? I hope so. I see seeds of it. It's catching on. Some of us are doing it. I'm growing in that. I've seen the blessings of that, but not fully yet. So we press on to that. And the trouble is we tend to be wired and conditioned to avoid that rather than to seek accountability in gospel community. I believe with all my heart that the reason that we do is because we misunderstand them. We, we understand uh, or misunderstand accountability and gospel community as going back into our parents' house, gathering people around you to tell you how to run your life, how to live your life, something that's constricting, something that's threatening, something that's onerous, something that we don't want, something that's going to imprison us and that we should run from. Isn't that why we moved out here? This is more freedom. I got more space. I can get by myself. Part of it. I can wear shorts when it's 20 below. And nobody's going to tell me not to. Because there are a lot of brain damaged people just like myself. I believe we just misunderstand something that God gave us as an essential blessing in following Jesus Christ. Accountability and gospel community. If we, if we back up, 
And we just think about accountability and gospel community with regard to the Trinity, the very God that we worship and serve and follow. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is such a beautiful example of loving accountability in gospel community, amen? I mean, the Father, the Father reigns, the Father uh, loves, the Father sends the Son, Jesus obeys, submits, comes on his rescue mission, right, to rescue, and, 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 and becomes flesh, and it goes to the cross, and, and the Father puts all things under Jesus' authority, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to continue the rescue mission, to continue to convict the world of sin, continue to pull us and draw us. If you're feeling drawn to Jesus Christ, it's not something you've done to yourself. It's the Holy Spirit working. And then at one point, Jesus is going to place everything under the Father's feet. It's a beautiful picture. We serve a God that embodies loving accountability in gospel community. He is in himself those things that he calls us to. So what does accountability in gospel community do for us, and how do we do it? I'd like us to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll give you a chance to get there. I really need you to see this. So if you you have your Bibles, it will be projected, but if you've got one, turn there. I'd really like for you to see this. Accountability and gospel community keep us inspired and motivated. How do we do that? Okay, Hebrews chapter 10. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Here's a charge to us. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit, as is the habit of some rather, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Someday we'll do... uh, We'll do a a message or a series on what the day means. You'll see that day is capitalized. There's a reason for that. We'll get to that, but it's not today. Um, Get that. Isn't that exciting? That accountability and gospel community, part of that should be that we should sit down and plan and scheme and plot how we're going to challenge one another, how we're going to inspire one another, how we're going to fan into flame the gifts of the Holy Spirit in one another to go live and do the miraculous, to love and good works that God has planned before time that we should be engaged in, that he has prepared for us. How are we going to do that? How are we going to challenge each other? How are you going to go today and transform your workplace? How are you going to go and love the unlovable? How are we going to transform this city? How are we going to change the culture of that college for Jesus Christ? How? How are you going to do it? Here, let me challenge you. Let me inspire you. And then do it back to me. That's what we need to do. That's what it's talking about, right? Um, okay. And, it, and it's encouragement. It's wonderful. It's firing up one another. And then in verse 25, this always struck me as odd. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Now, God bless you. How did this become the proof text for you better go to church every Sunday or else? Really? How did this become the proof text for you better go to church every day? Well, you better anyway. But I don't think this is what this is talking about. I grew up Catholic. So like you had a holy day of obligation, which is Sundays plus other special times. If you didn't show up, I was told you got like a black mark on your soul. I was like 10 years old. I thought the left half of my body soul wise was covered in black. I had to get with it. I was going to be in trouble. Oh, we laugh, but like we Protestants, we do the same thing, right? We just use different images. 
Now, there are other things that say, yes, come together. Yes, worship the Lord. I would be, we wouldn't have enough seats if everybody who comes here occasionally came here all the time. And we'd be growing exponentially. It'd be great. But that is, context is king in Scripture. And it's not what it's talking about. What is it talking about? It's talking about life on life, gospel community. It's about connecting me and you, you and me, outside of this. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all the time, having relationships where we connect. And it's saying some are in the habit of isolating themselves. Oh, this is, this is my race. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. Maybe we don't articulate it that way, but we live that way. And I counsel people. I wouldn't say every week, but... It doesn't matter what they're wrecked about. I would say a full 95% part of that is I feel so alone. I'm walking through this alone. Part of that is that there aren't people who will speak the gospel into their lives and part of it might be that they have closed themselves off from giving people permission to do that. But either way, gospel community accountability should be firing one another up and not neglecting that. Okay, Uh, it does more. I need you to turn to Galatians, please, chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And this is just an overview. There's so much to this, but we're going to get a taste of it. Galatians chapter 6, the first two verses. Paul's writing to that church and writing to ours as well. It says, brothers... Verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, and we always think like people are hunting down and you bust them. No, I, I think caught in, in means struggling in, like caught in a net, entrapped in. Any transgression, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You see the love, the humility, the gentleness that's there? Here's the humility. Keep watching yourself too lest you too be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So sometimes we not only, as in Hebrews, have to inspire and encourage and and be cheerleaders so we're not withering on the vine. We have spiritual cheerleaders in our lives who who are spurring us on, it says, to love and good deeds. But sometimes there's sin in one another's lives and, and we need to lovingly confront that. We need to do that, but we need to do it as, as this, this passage is dripping with, with love and humility and gentleness. Okay? Love and humility and gentleness. Now, before we go on, there's a little sidebar here. This starts off saying brothers. That means brothers and sisters. That means the family of God, those who are in Christ. The church's message to the world outside of the church, outside those who are far from Jesus Christ, our message is not be more moral. Our message is not behave. The message we have been entrusted with is not act like you do belong to Jesus Christ. Our message to those without Christ is the gospel. Our message is not behave. The message we're called to bring is believe. Believe what? Believe the gospel. Believe that you are loved by the creator God in such a way that you can't even imagine the depth and the extent and the power and the bulletproofness of that love. 
Even though you, like me, like everyone before us, comes from our first parents who rebelled against the king, who sinned, and that's in our bloodline. We've rebelled against the king, but the king loves us so much that he sent his only son to come on a, on a rescue mission, fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life, to live the life that you and I were supposed to live. You know, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, loving God with all our hearts, loving our neighbor as ourselves. We shatter that every 15 minutes. All of us, whether we look good on the outside or not, But Jesus comes and he lives in fulfillment of that. And then he goes to the cross. He dies the death that we deserve, that he paid the penalty for in our place for our sins as our substitute. That cross was mine. I was supposed to be there. You were supposed to be there. Wages of sin is death. But he tasted that. He experienced that. He paid that for all of us so that we could be set free and forgiven. And then he rose again so that we could have new life. It gets even better. Not only does he wash our slates clean, he does what we're going to talk more about next week. He takes his record of righteousness, credits it to our account. That's the best good news. That's our message. There is hope. We're wrecked. God is not. He's made a way. It's Jesus. Come, turn your back on death, turn to life. Turn your back on darkness, turn to light. The Holy Spirit works in us to do that. That's our message. Okay, it was a long sidebar, but, you know. Um, I preached like at 9.30 at New Song, and so you're getting all the stuff I cut out of that one. So, um, good. So sometimes we have to lovingly confront one another about sin. Here's the stuff we like to confront one another about. Not necessarily sin, but stuff that the scriptures are vague on. Debatable issues. Don't wear shorts to church. Don't wear jeans to church. I got a visitor who, who was very offended that I preached in jeans. And it, ironically, the message was on the, the older brother and the prodigal son who missed the point. It's not don't go outside with wet hair. It's not don't run with scissors. It's not don't have a Coors Light while you watch UFC on the weekends. It's not, it's not, it's not. If those things convict you, the things that Scripture is not clear on, God, by, for God's glory, do them. But don't put that mantle on everybody else. Scriptural issues. Scriptural issues. And how do we do it? We do it in love and humility and grace. So confronting a fellow believer that is struggling with this sin. We have to have love and humility and grace on both sides to share and to receive. Here's a good guideline. If you care more about the sin than you do about the person, don't say anything. If you care more about the sin that's being committed than you do about the person it's destroying, keep your mouth shut. And I've had to do this many times because if that's the case, then you and I need to repent first about the fact that we love morality and rule keeping more than we love people or God. So that's, what is it supposed to look like? Here's what it should look like. I think I've used this image before. It's like somebody that you dearly, dearly love is walking through a minefield and you see them raise their foot and they're about to step on a landmine that's going to destroy them and things in their life and people in their life. 
and you well up with love and humility and compassion and, and gentleness, but you run, you sprint to them, and you grab them and you say, I love you. And, and what you're doing or what you're about to do is going to destroy you. And God can't bear that and I can't bear that. Please, please no. That's what it looks like. It does not look like self-righteousness. It doesn't sound like self-righteousness. It sounds like the most loving thing you could say to somebody you care about. I could no more let somebody that I love step on a landmine and just watch it happen. How many times do we do that? Or how many times has somebody come up to us and said, in a sense, you're about to step on a landmine. Mind your own business. You know, who are you? I've been part of this church longer than you. (laughs) Fix your own life. I want you to see in this passage, it says, you who are spiritual should restore him. Restore. has a very positive rebuilding, new life, restore, put back together. It's, it's, It's very positive. It's not bust them. Our motivation is not that we want this person busted and to pay the penalty of our sin. Their sin. Jesus didn't want that. He wanted to spare us from that pain, right? So we we want to restore. It is nothing like the three sisters that I had that wanted to see me busted and punished for shaving their doll's head. It's not like that. They got a profound sense of joy to see me get spanked. Uh, Excuse me, I grew up in a day before timeout was invented. Um, We want them to be spared the pain, spared the punishment, to restore. So we need the right heart attitude. But we have to be able to receive it in love and humility and gentleness. Gentleness, we seldom do that well. We sell, you want to see somebody in the church flip out and lose their mind? Point out a blind spot in their life. Point out a sin in their life. Even lovingly, humbly, and gently. And bring them a scripture that gives them encouragement, that gives them the right way. They might leave your small group. They might leave your fellowship. They might leave your friendship. They might leave the church. So I'm not accepted. Well, you are accepted, but you want to go to be in a place where you're not loved either. Because I can no more love you and let you step on a landmine, right? The flip side is also dangerous. That we get so into this that we see ourselves as hunters for other sins. Because if we're always doing that, we don't have to listen to the Holy Spirit who's saying, got a mirror? Look inside. You got a big telephone pole sticking out of your eye. You know, you're, you're getting the tweezers out for your brother. So it's humility on both sides. It's what it looks like. Um, so there's responsibility on both sides. Share it well, receive it well. Love, humility, gentleness. Verse continues, keep watch on yourself. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. By what? I believe it's pride. The danger is pride on, on both sides. And pride is a serious deal. You know, in, in Christian circles, you know, I struggle with pride. That's almost a prideful thing to say, you know, in some, some twisted way. That's not like a flea-bite sin. That happens to be the sin that made Satan Satan. It is the complete anti-God state of mind, state of heart, pride. Pride in sharing that we would be puffed up with self-righteousness and superiority over the person we're trying to serve when we become a servant and say, no, your sin is mine to identify, lift up, carry, pray for, help you with. 
So on the sharing side, it's the pride of self-righteousness and prideful self-righteousness. On the receiving side, it's, it could be the pride of defensiveness and self-protection. Speaking in my life, tell me how to live. You're divorced. You're this. You're that. I want to talk about what a pain in the neck you are. And so we shut our minds and we shut our ears to the truth that God might be speaking through a brother or sister. So pride, keep yourself and do this in humility. Oh, and then it goes on in verse 2. And bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't that how Jesus loves us? Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Francis Chan tells a story of a young man who was saved out of the gangs of Los Angeles, came to Jesus Christ, surrendered his life completely, was baptized and joined the church, attended the church for a little over a month, and then disappeared. Stopped coming. And when somebody came to him and said, you know, what's going on? What happened? He said, well, maybe I got it wrong. Not the Jesus part, but the church part. You see, um, when I joined the gang, they immediately became my family. I belonged to them. I was part of them. They were part of me. And they had my back 24-7. If I had to sleep on the street, they were there sleeping on the street with me. Everything, everything, they were there. I was part of that family. And I, I thought that the church would be the same. But maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. And I share this with you, uh, not to sound potentially sacrilegious, but maybe in that case, the gang knew more about being the church or behaving like the church than the church knew about how to b- behave and, and be like the church. And, and that convicts me that some places do that aspect of what church is supposed to be doing better than the church does. Maybe I was wrong. He wasn't wrong. He was right to expect that because that's all about the being one. That's all about accountability and gospel community. On your own time, look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 23. It's all about how we can unpack that for each other, in each other, and experience the joy and every blessing Jesus died to give us. You say, well, I have scripture. I have scripture. It's all I need, you and your Bible. Well, that's great, but are you going to limit God's living word from the page to your heart? Bible's a big book. Do you get it all? I don't. You understand it all? You're applying it all? I don't. When I'm alone with my Bible, which I should be, but that's all I have. All I can know and understand and apply is all I know and can understand and apply. When I'm in a group of trusted gospel community people, I have the benefit of all that all of them know and experience and apply. Right? We all have blind spots. My blind spots are not the same as your blind spots. Your blind spots are not the same as her blind spots. We drive in the car at night, Sheree and I, I see the road, I see other vehicles, occasionally pedestrians. She sees like uh, wildlife, all of them. I don't see any of them. She sees deer, she sees elk, she sees squirrels on the far hills moving. But together, we see it all. That's the point. That's the point. 
together, we can walk together. We see where each other can't see. Oh, I have the Holy Spirit. Yes, you do, if you belong to Jesus Christ. But you want to settle for only the still, small voice speaking to your heart? How's that working out? How many times have you just pressed in and said, Speak, God, speak. I'm listening in silence. You should do that. A couple of questions, though. Where does the Holy Spirit live? In believers. Doesn't it stand to reason that God may be speaking the answer to your prayer or your question through your brothers and sisters in Christ whom you've refused to be in gospel community and accountability relationships with? That he might want to speak that through you into somebody else's life. Yeah. Not to diminish the the one-on-one with God, but that's not the whole ball of wax. When we were singing, I'm running to your arms. Remember that song? That's beautiful. I, I wasn't familiar with it. Running to your arms. What did you picture? Did you have a, a mental picture of that? Here's a convicting thing. I'm bringing this message and I'm picturing myself like running across a field alone with Jesus on the other side. I'm running to his arms. His arms are open. Is that wrong? No. Is it incomplete? Oh, you bet. And that's exactly what we're, what we're being pressed on by God this morning about. Why is my mental picture, and maybe yours, not all of us running together into Jesus' arms? Because that's the call of Scripture into accountability and gospel community. I misunderstood. I still need to grow a lot in my understanding of accountability and gospel community. But I got a picture of it a couple of years ago that so burned into my heart that I will remember it as long as I breathe. It's one of those moments. Um, It's going to sound strange, but um, you, so many of you know Tommy, our son, who just graduated from Wheaton outside of Chicago. He was a football player there. And, and, and ever since when we dropped him off for the first preseason kind of thing, they said, um, you have to go to the 12-minute run night. Really? I have to go watch this? Because it was after all the dinners and the, the parent things that they do so it's on a Sunday night. So you've got to stay another night in a hotel, miss work probably all day on Monday because you're going to go at night to the stadium under the lights to watch guys run for several heats of 12 minutes. And you're thinking, Tom, you're obviously a distance runner. Why wouldn't you enjoy that? You're very kind. I'm actually a bicyclist. Um, the, um, <laughs> many of you are laughing because you know that's not true either. I just got the training wheels off. So we blew that off because it sounded like a joke. We did that. We blew it off for two years, and then we, we got tired of people saying, no, you need to go. You need to experience this. I wasn't ready for it. Here's what it is. 12-minute run means that they have roughly four heats. 
Um, and they're gathered in these heats by the position they play and how much foot speed is required for that position. For instance, like the wide receivers and the safeties and stuff, they'd be gathered together because the amount of distance they need to cover in that 12 minutes is the same. But that's very different from the, like the linemen uh, on, on offensive defense. They'd have a, a shorter distance. So, so it's grouped by that. And on the jumbotron on the scoreboard, they've got the people and they've got the times and, and you see them all line up in the, in the first heat. And bang, off they go. When we got there, under the lights, there are hundreds, hundreds of people that have nothing to do with the football program here to watch this. And I'm still asking myself, why? About nine minutes into the first heat, the first run, I found out why. Because both by looking at the track and by looking at the scoreboard, it became painfully obvious who was going to blow it away, finish with plenty of time. It also became clear that there was a group there that might finish on time or might not. The heartbreaking thing was, it also became clear that there were guys who were not going to make it unless something miraculous happened. And if they don't make it, they don't play. And with about nine minutes left, something miraculous did happen. The guys who are not going to make it on their own, about 10 people, 10 other players from the infield run out to where they are on the track. Each one of them, about half are like running alongside, cheering their name, encouraging them, speaking life into them, inspiring them, cheering them on. The other half get behind the guy and put their hands up and down his back and his legs and they run and they push him. And all he has to do is lift his legs up because in between strides, he's flying on their arms. And it's amazing to watch. And when they cross the finish line, this kid who is absolutely exhausted, can't even stand and falls into their arms and they're crying and they're celebrating because their win was their win. Their loss was their loss because they're connected. And if one falls behind, we all suffer. And um, that kept going. And then in the fourth heat, as they were coming out to rescue the kids who were not going to make it on their own. The first one to bolt out of the infield was the one who got rescued from the first heat to get behind and cheer and push and encourage. He was giving the same love, humility, support, challenge, encouragement, conviction that he had received. I'm running to your arms. Are you running alone? A lot of us are. 
So what do we do about it? We take the next step in accountability and gospel community to connect, to love, and the gospel one another. If you don't have a small group of trusted accountability partners, get them, ask them. If you're not a member of a life group, this is where it should be happening. This is where sanctification happens. This is where growth happens. You're not going to experience spiritual growth just coming here on Sundays when you're not skiing or doing other things. You're just not going to have it. It's when we press on one another, when we let people speak God's voice, His Word, His Spirit into our lives in encouragement, in conviction, in warning, in everything. We make ourselves vulnerable. Maybe you're part of a life group and you're not connecting at that level. This is a challenge. We need people to call us on our junk and not let us weather because we don't have any spiritual cheerleaders in our lives. This is a chance for us not to run the race alone. It's a chance for us to invite people to put their hands on our back and carry us. Or maybe it's your turn to bolt out of the infield to somebody else and give them the help and the hope that Jesus has given you. Here's the miracle. Broken people connecting with broken people in the presence, the spirit, and the word of God to carry us into his arms together. Jesus came to call a people. There is coming a day when he will come back. The trumpet sound be raised up together. His heart cry is, don't let that be the first time you've ever experienced that togetherness. We've got to tear down some walls. Because the church is waiting to be the church. God is waiting to be glorified. And it's a great blessing, not a curse. Let's pray. God, I want to repent of my own um, desire to be left alone to walk alone, to not want people to see in deeply um, to the places where I fear, the places where I doubt, the places where I struggle. And I don't particularly um, in my flesh want to serve that role with others. Lord, but you do when you call us to be one to run into your arms together. We're saved only by you, Lord. We know that. You bring us home. But we want to get there with as much obedience and joy and light and freedom, everything that you died to give us. And we need to be changed. We need a heart transformation to want the things that you want, to love in the way that you want us to love to be humble and to be gentle, to be your voice, to be your arms, to be your heart for each other. Lord, do that in our hearts and change us. Our life depends on it. Our life depends on you. Because we need you, we need each other. Make it so for your glory. In your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray.